So as I mentioned, you know, this morning, Glenn and I have known each other for a little while, about eight years or more. And uh, over the last three years, we've talked to each other every week, whether we want to or not. Because <laughs> we have a, a podcast that people expect us to, to produce. And by the way, the secret to a successful podcast, or one of the secrets to them, is consistency. And if you're just consistent and you just keep putting out content, your audience grows. So we're about 10,000 listeners now around the world. I did check the latest numbers. We have been listened to in 138 countries, which just blows my mind. But anyway, uh, one of the reasons why people are uh, you know, interested in our show is because of the background and expertise that Glenn brings as an historian. So Glenn, why don't you come on up and uh, preach to us now. And by the way, he's also the Reverend Dr. Glenn Sunshine. You are my sunshine, Glenn. You are my sunshine. You write your own material? <laughs> okay. Um, our scripture reading today is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is the word of the Lord. Peter, uh, as we all know, was really the leader of the apostles. Um, different churches, like the Catholic Church, uh, hold him in particularly high regard. But I think all of us have to recognize that Jesus picked him to be a leader for a reason. And so what we see here is something that I think we need to take very seriously. I'm actually going to start with the last paragraph of what I read which I will paraphrase for you. This is starting in verse 12. I am about to die. Jesus has made it clear to me that my martyrdom is coming. And so before I go, this is the thing I want to emphasize to you. 
I want you to hear this. I want you to remember this because after I die, this is going to be really important that you keep this stuff in mind. When an apostle says something like that, I think it pays to pay attention. This is really important stuff, that what we're seeing right here. Now, if you've studied Paul's writings, Romans, uh, Ephesians, any number of other epistles, you'll notice that there's a pattern in a lot of them. He spends the first part of the book talking about theology. He gives you a whole bunch of doctrine, and then you get the magic word, therefore, and he tells you what that doctrine means for how you live. You know, so it divides into two parts, theory and practice, with the therefore in the middle. Peter has done that for us right here, except he did it in a much shorter period, a much shorter space. Verses 3 and 4, which is one rather long and complicated sentence, um, is an incredible statement of what the gospel is, what the gospel promises to us. And then the following verses, starting with verse 5, is the therefore, okay? Or as Peter puts it, for this very reason. So there's a set of ideas, a set of doctrine, a set of teaching in verses 3 and 4, and then 5 on is really sort of the, well, the practical implications of this. The doctrine is important, so we've got to start there. And i got to tell you, this sentence is, well... Paul has worse sentences. Um, in Ephesians, he's got a sentence that runs 43 words in Greek. Um, this one is shorter than that, but it is so dense and so complex. There's so many different ideas packed together that it pays for us to unpack it a bit before we take a look at sort of what it means for us and for how we live. So we'll take this you know, clause by clause. Um, and I'm going to have to do this briefly because we could be here all night otherwise. Um, I should tell you that uh, as a college professor, I'm used to lecturing for an hour and a quarter. So, um, okay. So it begins with, starting in verse 3, I'm going to skip over the, the greetings and so on uh, that precede this. They're worth paying attention to, but for the sake of time, we'll skip those. So it begins with, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I'm going to stop there for a moment. A couple of things to note here. And this is, the significance of this will become clear later. But it's God who provides us with all these things. God is the one who has, well, the, the translation here is granted us. I don't understand why they did it that way. The Greek verb simply means give. God's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. So all these things that we have that deal with life, that deal with godliness and so on, are gifts of God. They come from him. It's not our efforts. This is core Reformation teaching. We're saved by grace through faith. Salvation is a gift of God. Okay, so this is where we start off. God's divine power has given us these things. And what he's given, and it's, notice the tense, has given. It's something that's already been done. And he has given us everything that relates to life and everything that relates to godliness. So we'll come back to the word godliness later. It's going to reappear later in the chapter. But, you know, when you think about it, our life, even our life in this world comes to God. Uh, in the, the hymn, I Sing the Mighty Power of God, there's a line, all, all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. The life we have 
is borrowed from God. God is the source of life. Jesus is someone who has life in himself. He doesn't get it from anybody else. He has life in himself. God has life in himself, but everybody else, all of our lives are derived from him. God is the one who gives us the breath of life. So he's the source of our life in this world, but more importantly for Peter, he is also the source of eternal life. And we'll be dealing with eternal life as we go along, but we need to move along here. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. A couple of observations here. Knowledge. Uh, the word here in Greek is actually an intensifier. It, it isn't just normal knowledge. It's, it's an intensive form of knowledge. It takes the normal word for knowledge, gnosis, and adds, uh, adds a prefix to it that makes it even stronger. So what's going on there? Well, we, one of the things that's unique about Peter, uh, and frankly, I wish God had put more of his writing in the New Testament if for no other reason than this, Theologians often talk about Paul's theology, you know, Pauline theology. He's got a particular distinctive angle on Christianity you see in Paul. Uh, he'll talk about Johannine theology. John has a particular angle on Christianity. It's a bit different from Paul's. They're not contradictory, but they're just sort of different ways of getting at the truth of the gospel. Peter actually combines the two. In Peter, you see both Johannine style theology, it's theology like you see in John, and theology like you see in Paul. This is one of the places where John is coming out. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Well, of him. Who is him? God. Now, why is that connected to John? Well, what John tells us is eternal life is knowing the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is grounded in the knowledge of God. And so we get all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of God, through the, through the source of eternal life, or the nature of eternal life itself, which is knowledge of God. Now, pausing on the word knowledge for one more moment, we also see the word knowledge showing up uh, in other places in Scripture, obviously, but the one that I think is most important is in Genesis 4, where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. Now, okay, no there is obviously a euphemism, but it says something very important. The kind of knowledge that we're talking about is a knowledge rooted in intimacy. Knowing somebody in Scripture is a statement of having an intimate relationship with this person. This is why eternal life is found in knowing the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It, it's this kind of intimate relationship that is implied in the word knowledge here. So uh, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. God's given us these things through the knowledge, through our knowledge of him, through this intimate relationship we have with him. And this intimate relationship goes further. God has called us to, to something specific. He's called us to his own glory and excellence. We'll talk about excellence later. That's showing up later in the passage as well. You won't see it in English, but it's there. Uh, but glory. This is um, the idea of, of being called to God's glory. That's a Pauline idea. 
So for example, in Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So we're seeing this Pauline emphasis that salvation is not just forgiveness of sins, it's not just justification, but it's something that brings us to God's glory. We are glorified in Christ, and we are being called to God's own glory and excellence. More on excellence, like I said, in a minute. And through all of this, by which, by, by his own glory and excellence, he has once again given us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What? God has, by his glory and excellence, God has given us promises, very great promises, precious promises. And those promises mean that we are being made sharers, partakers of God's very nature, his divine nature. This is an idea that in, in Greek Orthodox theology is called theosis. Uh, Greek, uh, the, the Eastern Orthodox approaches to salvation are really different from ours. In the West, the Western Church, um, Protestantism and Catholicism, the emphasis is on forgiveness of sins. It's sort of a judicial thing. It's a legal thing. In the Orthodox world, they don't talk about that so much. Yeah, they talk about forgiveness of sins, but the orientation of salvation for them, the idea of what it means to be saved, is to be made a partaker of the divine nature. To be, the, um, uh, divinization, it's called in Latin, theosis in Greek. We're becoming like God. God is sharing with us those aspects of his nature that he can share with us. This is a remarkable thing that we are told is happening. And yet this is something that's completely foreign to the way we think. Um, and part of this sharing in the divine nature, there's a lot more that can be said there, but I'm looking at the clock, um, is that we, it is predicated on us having escaped from the corruption that is in the world by sinful desires. Okay, what does that mean? Well, uh, let's start with sinful desires. The, this is something that's really countercultural. In our culture, uh, we are not, you know, Descartes is not the way, uh, you know, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. In our culture, it's more, I want, therefore I am. I desire, therefore I am. I am what I desire. Uh, we have a culture that defines itself entirely in terms of our drives, our desires, and so on, many of which, when we look at the culture as a whole, are corrupt. And this is something that we face ourselves in our own life because of, of the effect of sin in us. We desire many of the wrong things. And all of this leads to corruption in our own life and in the world. But through Christ, according to Peter, we have escaped from that. We have, maybe not perfectly, but we are no longer a slave to these corrupt desires. That's an essential element that has to be in place if we're going to become partakers of the divine nature. Because if we are continuing to live in sin, in habitual sin, continuing to live according to our corrupt desires, we cannot share in God's nature. Because God's nature is, in essence, uncorrupt, pure, and holy. 
And as we grow in grace, we need to be growing more and more like that and saying no and turning away from these kinds of sinful desires. Because if we do that, well, as we do that in Christ, we become progressively more and more conformed, Pauline language, conformed to the image of his Son, which is another way of saying we are partaking of the divine nature. We're becoming more and more Christ-like in our lives. But part of that has to be rejecting what our culture is trying to tell us, that your desires define who you are. We need to escape from those corrupt desires. Okay, so this is, in this one sentence, this is a very compact, very dense explanation of implications of salvation that most of us rarely, if ever, really think about. But this is so important that Peter's last word to the church starts and centers on these these ideas. Now, where do we go from here? Well, he says, for this very reason, this is the therefore, he tells us to make every effort to do something. Now, understand our salvation comes from God. God's divine power has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. But that doesn't mean we're off the hook. There are things that we ourselves should be doing. And this is what Peter is instructing the people about. We're supposed to make every effort, and I'm going to walk through these pretty quickly, um, make every effort to supplement or to add to your faith. And then there's a whole list of things. Now, when you have a list like this, there, this is a literary convention in Greek. This is something that, that Greek and Roman writers did. They'd give you a list, add, you know, to this, add this, to that, add this, to this, add, and so on. The order doesn't make a lot of difference. It's not like this is exactly sequential. The first one and the last one are the things that are the center. So in this case, the first is faith, the last is love. Those are the things that are most important. The ones that come in between are important, but those are the two central ideas. So we're to supplement our faith. Peter is assuming we have faith. I would suggest that we need to actually work at strengthening our faith too. But Peter is talking about adding to it. So what, does, what do we add to our faith? Well, the first thing that we're to add is um, virtue. Now, remember I told you that you know, where he talks about God's glory and excellence. I told you excellence was going to come back. The word virtue here, the word that's translated virtue, is the same word that is translated a verse earlier as excellence. In Greek, the idea of virtue is, um, is anchored in excellence. It means excellence in living. Um, there are a, a lot of aspects of this. It includes things like, um, uh, it includes things like um, manly qualities. Virtue is often associated with men, so courage, strength, actually wit. All of these kinds of things are the first things that show up in Greek discussions of virtue. But when you take it a step further, the idea of virtue, again, it involves excellence in all areas of life, and particularly um, things that produce practical results heading toward a worthwhile goal. So if you have this worthwhile goal in mind that, that, that you're striving for, some, some excellent thing that you are striving for, Virtue is found in taking the practical actions that lead you to that goal. So there's this, this um, 
uh, there's this intensely practical aspect of it. Um, the core concept is, though, that we should be striving for excellence in all areas of life that are leading us toward God. You know, in, for the Greeks, this would involve a whole lot of different things, ultimately. Well, I'm not going to go there. It would take too long. Um, but but uh, this idea that every area of your life that pertains to God, which is all of them because Jesus is Lord of everything, all areas of our life we should be striving for excellence in them. That's what virtue really points to here, this idea of virtue. Um, to virtue, we add knowledge. This is a different word from knowledge. This is knowledge without that intensifier that we saw earlier. Um, so it isn't, it isn't, strictly speaking, knowledge of God. But what it's referring to is, is knowledge of scripture, uh, knowledge of doctrine, uh, knowledge of wisdom, you know, a, a growing in wisdom. Uh, the word knowledge is used in all of these senses. Uh, wisdom, by the way, can be defined as skill in living. Okay. So, again, a practical element of this. Um, from knowledge, you get to self-control. I think that one is self-explanatory. It's worth noting that it is a fruit of the Spirit. The thing that I find most distressing about this list is self-control is followed by steadfastness. I'm really good at self-control in the short term. Steadfastness points to the fact that it's got to be over the long term. We have to be consistent in pursuing all of these good things. Um, and, and, and steadfastness, when you read uh, Paul, for example, and a lot of other places in Scripture, steadfastness is a constant exhortation in Scripture. It shows up over and over and over again. Um, it's, some, it's frequently uh, attached to endurance or patience. These kinds of ideas are what this, this is getting toward. Uh, then we move to godliness, and this is one that um, Pastor Wiley uh, has written a book on, in a lot of ways, uh, The Household in the War for the Cosmos. The idea of godliness, again, it's one of these words that we think we know what it means, but the Greek idea, the, the word in Greek, eusebeia, uh, points to what I would best summarize as a duty. It is duty toward God, duty toward other people, giving to each what is owed to them. Um, it might seem odd, but that's really what the word means. You know, godliness, I don't know why they, they, they ended up translating it with that particular word, but when you see godliness, think duty, think responsibility toward God and toward others. Then you move to brotherly af affection. Um, this is the, the word actually Philadelphia in Greek. Um, no, it does not refer to the city of brotherly love where you frequently have uh, riots. Uh, what it's referring to instead, well, it's translated brotherly affection, and I think that's a reasonable translation, a, a reasonable way of getting at the concept. Um, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, one of the loves is philia, um, which he translates friendship. Now, friendship in almost everywhere else in the world beside America, friendship means more than a casual acquaintance with a person. Uh, it is a deep relationship uh, characterized by mutuality. Each of you uh, is, is giving something to the other. There's, there is a, a, um, a kind of common life that takes place in friendship. Um, a kind of sharing. 
That's what Paul's referring to here. We should have this kind of mutuality in our relations within the church. Um, and then he goes from there to love. Um, now, you'd think love would mean the same thing, but it really doesn't. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't talk at all about mutuality or anything of the sort. Uh, the, probably the best way to think about this is that in friendship, it goes, you know, the, the giving goes in both directions. Each party gives to the other. In love, agape love, it's one direction. You are giving to somebody else without regard of any, getting anything in return. Okay, so there is, there is a very altruistic giving orientation to agape, which is a bit different from what you're seeing in friendship or brotherly affection here, where there's a kind of, of community, a kind of mutuality taking place. Okay, so love and faith, like I said, the, 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 the beginning and ending points are the things that are most important on this list, but you can't ignore the stuff in the middle either. And not surprising, by the way, that love and faith would, would be the, the two key points. Uh, again, look at Paul. And now there are three things that last, faith, hope, and love. You've got faith and love there. Faith and love appear together frequently with hope over and over again through Paul's letters. We're seeing it again here. Now, why, why is Peter telling them this? You know, he's telling them that this kind of life, a life characterized by pursuit of these things, is a necessary consequence of what he said about the nature of salvation in those first two verses we walked through. So when Peter sees a direct connection between being a partaker of the divine nature, receiving God's great and precious promises, uh, having all things that pertain to life and godliness, he sees that the implications of that for us is that, therefore, we should, we must make every effort to grow in these qualities that he's just outlined. If we truly grasp the nature of our salvation, if we truly grasp what God has done for us, if we truly grasp everything that that salvation is way beyond just forgiveness of sins, that it involves glorif- it involves glory, it involves it involves sharing God's God's nature as much as that's possible for us as creatures. It involves union with Him. It involves all of these things. It involves an intimate relationship with Him. If we understand that, then what we will do, if we really grasp that, what we will do is we will begin working to improve our lives and improve our relationship with them, to grow in what is already true of us. These things are true. I need to start living like it. The way I start living like it is I pursue these qualities. And Peter, again, this is something Peter sees as absolutely critical. His last words to them are, you know, basically this, the instruction to do this. And he says, what happens if you don't do this? He tells you that if you, um, if, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to be effective, if you want to be fruitful in your relationship with God, these are the things you need to be pursuing. It's as simple as that. If you don't pursue them, well, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, if you're not pursuing these things, you don't really get it. 
you don't really get what it means to be cleansed from your sin. You don't really get forgiveness. You don't understand what that means. So, he, he continues, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And you will be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. So, what we see here then is that our understanding of salvation, the way we understand, what we understand salvation means, what we understand salvation is about, if we actually comprehend the full scope of the blessings that come to us through Christ, that God has already given to us, if we understand, to put it in uh, different terms, if we actually understand our hope of heaven, that's going to affect how we live. It's going to mean we're going to pursue those things that make for uh, a, a good life, that make for a life that is honoring to Christ, that it's striving for excellence, striving for virtue. All of these different things will be part of it because we know where we're going. We know what we've been called to. We know what God has done for us. And in response to that, we're going to live differently. We're going to pursue different things than the people who don't know Christ pursue. You know, in 1 John 4, 1 John 3, uh, he, John tells us, um, little children, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. John's saying the same thing. If we understand what we're called to, if we understand that when Christ returns, we're going to be like him, if we understand that this is what eternal life looks like, that this is the life we're going to be living in heaven, where everything, everything is right, nothing is wrong, nothing is broken, there are no more tears, there's no more death, there's no more suffering, that life there, if we understand what we're going to there, that's going to change how we live in the here and now, and we're going to start living the life of heaven on this earth in how we live. That's what Peter's talking about here. So... This is, I had actually thought I had 45 minutes, um, so this is a very compressed version of what I had planned to say. But the, the, the key thing I want you to come away with, is, I would say, is two things. First of all, I would, I would hope that you take the time to go through these, the, the doctrinal verses, versus, what is it, three and four or four and five, which one is it? Uh, three and four. Uh, I, w- I would encourage you to take the time to go through that and really spend time thinking about it, spend time meditating on it. Because, because if you do that, I think it will really help you grow in, in sheer wonder at the glories of salvation in Christ, what he's given us. I would like you to have true wonder about what it is God has done for you. And the second part of it is, well, you've got this list of things that, that you should be working to incorporate into your life. That should be a practical consequence of coming to understand the, the wonders of salvation. So I would encourage you to take some time, first of all, 
to meditate on those verses, three and four, to go through it, to take it slowly, I mean, to really take it slowly, and think about what it means. Think about what it's saying to you about what Christ has done. And when you really grasp that, I think you'll see why the things that follow in this, the practical uh, consequences of it, why that follows through and why these are things that are so very, very important for us to pursue. Thank you.